everybody. My name is Adam. I'm one of our leaders here. I've been asked to give the message. Ken is out today. Uh, for those of you that don't know, Ken is our interim pastor. It's been said a few times, but um, I'm super excited to give the message today. We're going to be in John 11. This is the first time that they've actually trusted me to continue through the series that we've been going through. I don't just get to cherry pick what verse and uh, what passage I do, so I'm super excited. John 11 is rich and packed, so with Luke's statement there, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to wheel back my sermon from two and a half hours down to two. We'll be good. No. We need to get back to the Father's Day activities, right? We need to grill and be strong, and that's what Father's Day is all about, right? Grilling meat. You can tell I like to make things awkward early and often, but the thing that we're going to do now is make it even more awkward. A lot of you are going to leave the room. Bridge kids, you are dismissed. As they go out the door there, I'm going to go ahead and pray and get us ready for God's word. God, thank you so much for uh, being the true and better father. I pray that we would not make this about American fatherhood and families and all good things, but we would make this about you, God. I pray that we would look at John 11 and see who you are, see how big you are. And I pray that we would also be able to see from an ancient text how close we are to Martha and Mary and Lazarus and at our core see how far away we are from Jesus and then see how close we are to Jesus because he comes to us. God. Help us to see these realities, not just talk about them, not just read them. I pray that your spirit would do the work. I pray that I would get out of the way, and we would learn from you. Amen. All right. So here's my question to start us off here. What is the best movie ending you have ever sat through? What's the best movie ending? Everyone's got their favorite movie. Which one ended and you were just like, well, now maybe that is my favorite movie, right? Maybe you're thinking of the fairy tale of the Disney endings where, of course, the bad guy gets killed. Or You know what I've noticed in Disney endings? They don't really kill him anymore. They just like send him off on like this firework that goes off into space. Or, yeah, like, but they get rid of him. They get rid of the bad guy and the good guy wins, right? And that's not a bad thing. Or maybe it's the sports movies where the team, of course, wins in the final drive. Or they win the state championship, right? And everything's been building to that. There's tension in the middle, and then there's victory at the end. And that's actually biblical. Like, there is victory in the end. But what's, the, what's your favorite movie ending? What's your favorite movie ending? Well, whatever you have in mind right now, unless it's what's on the next slide. Do we have that next slide? Please. Yes. Friday Night Lights. This, by far, is my favorite movie ending. And since I have the microphone, I'm just going to say it's the best movie ending ever. Yours is not as good as this. Okay? 2004, this came out. I watched it. It is killer. It's a pretty typical sports movie where there's a lot of tension in the middle and people are getting to know each other and there's, you know, there's football happenings. And it's football in Texas, so I can't really relate. I never played football. But the ending 
is amazing because they lose. I'm sorry, spoiler alert, 19 years later, I feel like I can do that. Okay, if you've never seen the movie, they lose in the final drive. That picture in the upper right-hand corner is where the ball finished on the final drive of the state championship. And that's not normally how our, how our stories go, right? And the last scene, the last football scene in this movie, it's all set up perfectly. Like the music is building and they're throwing the lateral and it's like this last play that they get to do. And the drama is raising. And you know this is the last play, the time has expired. And the guy with the ball continues to make yardage and there's blocks and there's tackles and they have the white jerseys on and the other team has the red jerseys on and the music and the cinematography, it's all gonna happen. You've got Friday Night Lights, they're getting brighter and the music continues to tell us, this is the play, this will happen. And they're charging down the field and it doesn't happen. Best movie ending ever. I've been really close to that, by the way. I ran on a cross-country team in high school, and our senior year, last race of the whole year, last cross-country meet I've ever been in as a high schooler, if one of us would have ran 10 seconds faster, we would have won the state championship. We got second. Our coach told us we all, we all had to run under a certain time and get under 100 points, and you win. That's the formula. That's the equation. And we all did, by quite a bit actually, and we got 99 points and we still lost. Why is this the best movie ending ever for me? It's reality. This is how you live your life. It's so rare to go all the way in the state championship and this is actually a more real story of how our lives go. It was a big punch in the gut. And as Luke just said, the fairy tale ending feels like it's nowhere to be seen sometimes. In your life, in my life, where is God in our fairy tale ending? And that's what we're gonna get into today. John 11, Martha, Mary, godly women, godly people, the Jews coming to Jesus and basically saying, where were you? Like, look at what's happening over here. Where were you? This is not fairy tale. Where were you? It's a punch in the gut. This is a killer ending. What we see as they lose the game, by the way, is that prayer at the end. Not, not that it's all about prayer, but this team is coming together. They're drawing near to one another. And what we see and what, what we're going to focus on today is this story of the state championship and this little thing, this little goal that they had and what they thought was everything was a small story that didn't work out on top of a bigger story. And that's what our lives are. We are thin blades of grass blowing in the wind in God's big story. Okay, There's a bigger story under here. Throughout the movie, you got to see a father mistreat his son, alcoholic father, not a fairy tale marriage, not a fairy tale family. And there's tension and broken relationship there. And after this game happened, that father came down and put his state championship ring on that kid's finger, who didn't deserve it because he didn't win the state championship. Now there's biblical analogies and we could preach all on that scene. And that's probably the most moving scene in cinematography I've ever seen. Because this whole broken relationship is undergirding a larger story and this little tiny football game is just a little story on top of it. There's a bigger story 
happening in the background of our small stories. And that's what we're talking about today. Go to the next slide, please. This is your sermon in a sentence. I stole that from Ken, by the way. I think it's helpful to tell you, this is where we're going today. This is what this whole next two hours is all about. God's story and glory are bigger than our story and our circumstance. And I'm sorry for not rhyming that last word. Our story, God's story and his glory are much bigger than our story and how we would write it and what we think our little life is and our circumstance. Okay, we see this in John 11. Let's go ahead and go to the next slide. So as you get your Bibles out, please, we're gonna be in John 11. We're gonna continue with the death of Lazarus. Now, most people, myself included, think of the death of Lazarus as this quick little miracle that God did. And that is true. Jesus raised Lazarus from the dead. That is the end. That's where we're gonna end up. But there is a lot here. Let me give you a little context. As you get your Bibles out, this is John 11. Jesus' death is in John 19, so we're not quite there yet, but Jesus is starting to ruffle some feathers with what he's claiming. Remember, John is all about who Jesus is. There's a lot about what he's doing, but John is answering the question, not just like, what does Jesus do? What are the miracles that he does? Why do people follow him? This is what he does, this is what he does, this is what he does, this is what he does. He continues to display and answer the question, who is Jesus? Why do I care about someone that does something if I don't know who they are? What is his credibility? Is this just another teacher? Is this just another rabbi? Is this someone that knows the scriptures really well and so now we trust him? This is what John is. Who is Jesus? Who is Jesus? And we've been walking through all the I am statements and we're gonna come across an I am statement today. And the I am phrasing is huge. Before Abraham was I am. We've been visiting that. I am the good shepherd. I am the bread of life. I am the door. There's another one in here. Okay, so we're gonna to get to the core of who Jesus is and who Jesus is pushes out what he does. Who Jesus is and who we are pushes out what Jesus does. We believe we operate out of our identity. So we don't wanna just play church and say this is what you do, here's the list of good things to do, here's the list of bad things to do, it's all about behavior management, this is not how we should raise our kids by the way. There are helpful actions. There are unhelpful actions. There are dangerous things that we need to be aware of and guard against. But this is not just what we do. This is who we are. And out of that identity, it pushes out to what do we do and what do we don't do. Okay, this is answering the question, who is Jesus? Let's read a little bit. I'm not going to read everything because today's, Ken gave me 44 verses. Okay, so I'm going to read the first six. We're going to go through the... We're gonna go through the story. I'm not gonna read every single verse, but I wanna start with verse one through six. Now a certain man was ill, Lazarus of Bethany, the village of Mary and her sister Martha. It was Mary who anointed the Lord with ointment and wiped his feet with her hair, whose brother Lazarus was ill. So the sister sent to him saying, Lord, he whom you love is ill. But when Jesus heard it, he said, this illness does not lead to death. This verse four is on the screen. This illness does not lead to death. It is for the glory of God, so that the Son of God might be glorified through it. 
Now Jesus loved Martha and her sister and Lazarus. So when he heard that Lazarus was ill, he stayed two days longer in the place where he was. That's kind of a weird verse. When he heard that Lazarus was ill, he should have ran as fast as he could and gone and healed him. He healed a blind man in in the earlier chapters. When he heard that Lazarus was ill, he stayed two days longer in the place where he was. What's up with this? Let's draw out a couple things. First of all, verse four. We're gonna come back to verse four. I think verse four sets the stage for the whole chapter on why our losses in life can be placed upon God's bigger story. This illness does not lead to death. This loss does not lead to death. Lazarus's illness does not lead to death. By the way, we find out later it does. He's not talking about death, lowercase d, death. He's talking about a bigger, uppercase d, death. This illness does not lead to death. It is for the glory of God. Once in a while, you come across these verses in the Bible and you go, what? This sad thing is for the glory of God so that the Son of God may be glorified through it. This is speaking to God's sovereignty and his story. He's not reacting He's not trying to make light or make better of a bad situation. His story has hard to swallow pills in it and they are for the glory of God. What's Jesus' posture? He stays, he stays near to those that are hurting. He doesn't, he's not in a hurry to fix the circumstance. His posture is to stay with Martha. And it says, now Jesus loved Martha and her sister and Lazarus, he loved them, that's why he stayed. Shouldn't he go and heal because he loves them? This is Jesus' approach in this situation. He loved them, so he stayed. This answers the question, is Jesus ever late? Did he come to a decision tree and make the wrong decision? Jesus is never late, let's continue. Actually, stay there. Um, Let me read verse 14. It ties this whole part together where he stays with them. Then Jesus told them plainly. So he's trying to like offer why he's doing this. And they're not understanding. And so once in a while, Jesus just has to say it concretely. Verse 14. Then Jesus told them plainly, Lazarus has died. This illness does not lead to death. Five, excuse me, 10 verses later, Lazarus has died. And for your sake, I am glad that I was not there. Jesus, what are you saying here? I am glad that I was not there so that you may believe. But let us go to him. There's a bigger story here than Lazarus physically living or physically dying. There's a bigger story here that Jesus is starting to tell and reveal. Let's continue. Next slide. We're going to talk about Martha a little bit. So now they're going. Now they're going. Let me read 17 through 22. Remember, he wants us to believe and he wants to reveal his glory. There's bigger promises underneath this sad situation. 17 through 22, I'm just gonna read the whole thing, this whole paragraph. When Jesus came, he found out that Lazarus had had already been in the tomb for four days. Bethany was near Jerusalem, about two miles off, and many of the Jews had come to Martha and Mary to console them concerning their brother. That's good. So when Martha heard that Jesus was coming, 
He must have come a little bit later than she went back. So he's coming now four days later, taking his time. She went and met him, but Mary remained seated in the house. Martha came out and said to Jesus, Jesus, Lord, if you had been here, my brother would not have died. But even now I know that whatever you ask from God, God will give you. So I want to point a couple things out. Just two things. Martha's posture. Martha is questioning. Like, yo, if you would have been here, this wouldn't have happened. She's questioning Jesus' timing. Her posture isn't probably how I just said it, by the way. Her posture is still at the end of the day. It reminds me of Jesus in the garden, by the way. Jesus asked God as he's going to the cross, if there's any other way, like, but at the end of the day, at the end of my phrasing here, not your will, but not my will, but yours be done. Even now, as I know that whatever you ask from God, God will give you. Martha's posture is to still obey, is to still be confused, but come under the authority of God and Jesus. This is a helpful posture, even though everything's not tied up and in a bow. This is not the fairy tale ending that Martha wanted. Her brother has died. Her brother has died. Jesus stays and draws near, and then he goes. So he's commanding the timeline of the story, this bigger story. Verse 23. Jesus said to her, your brother will rise again. Martha said to him, I know that he will rise again in the resurrection on the last day. So she's going, yes, I know the scriptures. I know what's going to happen. There is a bigger story here, and Lazarus will rise again in the final days. Here it is. Jesus said to her, I am the resurrection and the life. Stop looking at this circumstance as a chain of events for how you think he will resurrect. I've come now, and I am the resurrection. He didn't just say, I will resurrect. Martha, I'm going to do this thing. I am the resurrection. That's who I am. I am not just a resurrector. I will not just be resurrected. I am the resurrection and the life. This is central to Jesus' identity. And from that identity, he pushes out what he does. He is the resurrection. There's no other better way to say it. It's so ingrained in who he is. Resurrection is part of Jesus. He is the resurrection. He is the life. Where he goes, life is. This is different than saying, I'm going to perform a miracle. This is why this is so much more offensive than performing a miracle on a blind man, by the way. He's starting to claim identity. And we're seeing as we go through John, now we're, at verse, now we're at chapter 11, he's going to get killed in chapter 19, we're starting to see last, last week's chapter, chapter 10 ended in um, the Pharisees wanting to stone Jesus. At the end of this chapter, by the way, now they've got a plot where they know they need to kill him because he's starting to reveal his true identity. I am the Messiah. I am the good shepherd. I am the resurrection. The resurrection is here. I am. This is different. This is offensive to those that don't believe Jesus is God. He's claiming deity. He's claiming to be God. He's not just a good teacher. He's God. This is a crazy statement. Whoever believes in me, though he die, yet shall live. 
and whoever and everyone who lives and believes in me shall never die. Do you believe this, Martha? She said to him, yes, Lord, I believe that you are the Christ, the Son of God, who is coming into the world. So how does Jesus address Martha? How does Jesus address Martha? He speaks truth. He corrects in a, in a helpful way. He speaks. He lays down a truth statement. It's a little bit more objective. Some of us lean more towards that posture to just come out with words, to come out with truth, to have a high regard for truth, and Jesus is in there too. We're gonna see that balance out, by the way. He comes to Mary differently, and we'll get there in a sec. Jesus is the truth teller. He's reminding Martha, yes, there is erection at the end of days, but I am the resurrection. You have an objective, you have an objection. You have an objection to how this all went down. You maybe thought I was late. I'm not late. I'm the resurrection. There's truth. There's words. There's correction. When have you said it? When have you said, God, where were you? How are you like Martha? Because we're gonna get to Mary. How are you like Martha where you need to believe in the truth of God's promises with your objections? I've got plenty, by the way. God's promises, I will never leave you nor forsake you. Jesus is upholding that promise here. He was with Mary and Martha, and now he's with Lazarus. He's with us. He has not left us. You know, our world and our American culture promises a lot of things. Health, wealth, status, relationship. If you give enough, if you do this, if you're in the movie with all the cool music at the end, you're gonna win the state championship. There's a lot of promises out there. And there's actually pretty few promises in the Bible, but they're magnanimous. They're enormous. For the God of the universe never to leave us. That's the promise I'll take over health, wealth, relationships, status. Let's put something in our brain. When have you said it? When have you said, God, where were you? Where were you? All right, let's keep moving. Because Mary says the same thing. Go to the next slide, please. Mary says the next thing. The next, let me get my... Bible up here. We're going to read verse 32 with Mary. Okay? Short story before we get to verse 32 is Jesus is around. Jesus is speaking plainly to Martha who he is. And that doesn't just help everyone's feelings about Lazarus still being dead. That doesn't just like, it doesn't solve everything. And that's okay. It's okay to read the promises in the Bible and maybe not feel better right away and still have angst and questions about who God is and why he did it this way. Jesus is okay with these questions. So he comes, and, and now when Mary came, this is verse 32, now when Mary came to where Jesus was and saw him, she fell at his feet. 
This is another posture. She's like in anguish. She fell at his feet, saying to him, Lord, if you had been here, my brother would not have died. We're still stuck in the circumstances, and it's okay to wonder why my brother died. Like, that's okay. And Jesus doesn't, he doesn't just rebuke them. He, he knows why these questions are coming up, and he knows why your questions are coming up too, and mine. Her posture is asking, like he, she's at his feet. She's wanting to know, but she's leading with, you know, at the surface, like, Lazarus, we told you he was ill, and you stayed and comforted us, but four days later, you didn't get the ball across the line, Jesus. This is life. This is life. I've got it all over in my life. I might have a job and kids. The ball is not across the line how I thought it might be. My story has been shattered a few times, mostly in the last few years, from what I thought the story would be. And God still puts it on top of a bigger, better story. Jesus goes bigger. He goes bigger with his story, but also, how does he draw near to Mary? Same question. Did he just tell her, hey, you must not have been in the room. I told Martha this a little bit ago. I'm the resurrection and the life. No. When Jesus saw her weeping and the Jews who had come to her also weeping, he was deeply moved in his spirit and greatly troubled. And he said, where have you laid him? So now he's ready to go. He was deeply moved in his spirit and greatly troubled. Now, let me finish. Where have you laid him? They said to him, Lord, come and see. Shortest verse in the Bible, kids, if you've never memorized the Bible verse yet, John 11, 35, Jesus wept. That's a freebie, right? You just like know a Bible verse now. Jesus wept. Maybe one of the most misinterpreted verses in the Bible. Maybe. He definitely wept out of empathy. I mean, it, it says that he looked around, saw them weeping, and was deeply moved in his spirit. Now, the commentary on deeply moved in his spirit and greatly troubled is not just, I'm having an emotional response to other people having an emotional response. That's not what this is. This is a multifaceted response from Jesus. The commentary on this is kind of all over the place, to be honest. And the only other place that they have this word in the Bible is when Jesus is sternly rebuking people or giving warning. Now, I look at it like this, and some might disagree, and that's great, and that's fine. You know that movie, Inside Out? Not the best ending in the, on the planet. I'm not going back on what I said earlier. The movie Inside Out is all about these emotions, and we can see that we have anger flare-ups sometimes, and we can see that we have compassion flare-ups sometimes, and we can see that we have confusion or timid, being timid flare-ups sometimes. It's all about these emotions with this plot happening where you know, a young family moves, and there's different emotions happening. And a cool part about the end of that movie was 
there was like this emotion that came down. They, they, it's kind of weird to explain. Like the emotion comes down from this machine and it's like, okay, now there's fire, which means anger. Okay, now there's loss, which means, you know, we're sad. The end of the movie, they like turned a couple of them into each other. So there's like multiple emotions happening at the same time. Have you ever felt that? Multiple emotions happening at the same time. I believe that's what Jesus is doing right here. He's feeling sadness at the circumstance. He doesn't want Martha and Mary to be sad. He's, feel, he's empathizing. He's entering into the pain. He does that all throughout the Bible. He's also feeling anger. at. He's getting closer and closer to Lazarus, by the way. And he isn't just talking about life. He is the life. He is resurrection. This is who he is. So when he comes close to death, he actually has anger at the concept of death. Now, death is all around him and leprosy and things that are, you know, coming out from the, the fall. And he's not always angry, but he is about to work. And he's about to move death to life. And this is who he is. And he's not passive about it. He's angry with death. There might even be some rebuke at their unbelief. Because he's been saying, there's a bigger picture here. And I am the resurrection. And I don't think he had the demeanor of being like angry like at them. But there is multifaceted emotion going here. He's got a lot of emotion. He's got maybe awe. A lot of, one of the commentators spoke a lot about the awe that he's starting to feel because Jesus is fully God and fully human. So you can't tell me that a human, including Jesus, isn't starting to feel awe at a resurrection about to happen. If you, if you knew that there's a resurrection about to happen in front of your own eyes, would you not start to just be like, I've got something deep in my spirit. This is not watching football on a Sunday on the TV. This is at the heart of how God works miraculously. There's sadness, there's anger, there's awe, there's maybe a little hint of rebuke. He doesn't like unbelief. That's what sin is, it's unbelief. That word is, is talked about in Matthew as sternly warning, in Mark as sternly charging people, as scolding. So there's like this wrestling that Jesus is doing. He's about to enter into death's domain and disrupt it. This is who he is. He is life. Jesus did weep. He shows again that he's near. He shows again that he's near. How are you like Mary? How are you like Mary? You might not need the truth, you know the Bible, you know the promises of God, you know where they are, you read them in the Psalms, you read them in Isaiah, you see them in the Gospels, you know God's promises, and sometimes you just need someone to weep with you. You just need emotion there with you and to pour it out, and Jesus is saying, that's okay, this is good, this isn't just all we are is emotional. This isn't just all we are, which is truth-telling. Jesus is displaying he's the perfect, true, and better counselor. He's the perfect, true, and better counselor. When have you said it? Jesus, where were you? Maybe, you? maybe you need to realize that he's there for you in the loss. I just want to encourage you, like, you need that. It's something that we need. we need truth and we also need nearness. Jesus is displaying both to two different people 
And what I see him doing, before we just jump the gun and say, hey, this story is about Lazarus dying and now Jesus raised him from the dead. He's setting the stage with how perfect and how much bigger Jesus is. Jesus is so much bigger than we give him credit for. He's the perfect counselor. Can you imagine having someone perfectly be like this in your life? Normally, we're leaning towards, man, that, that guy or that girl is heavy on the truth, and they have a hard time empathizing. They have a hard time coming in and entering into multiple emotions about a situation. Or we're just a feeler. Who's the feeler in your relationship? Who's the feeler in your family? And sometimes they're, they're not speaking the truth. And Jesus is showing, I'm both. Life comes from both. We don't just feel our way through life. We also don't just slam the truth on people. He's so perfect. He's a good father. This is what good fathers do. And we're going to get into the demonstration. So he's teed up the demonstration. Because what he does and what he demonstrates is coming out of who he is. So we spent a lot of time on who Jesus is, which is where we should error. We should error in the Gospel of John with who is Jesus. And let me just put the little Father's Day message right up in here for us. Okay? I'm not preaching like a Father's Day message where we need to tailor it all towards fatherhood. But let me just ask. You go to the next slide, please. This is Jesus' TED Talk. We're going to move into the demonstration, but this is, what I, this is helpful for me to remember. Jesus' TED Talk, TED Talks are just things that people are interested in and they share what they think is true. And this is what Jesus does with his life. He shares the truth, he shares emotion, and then he demonstrates. So much chatter about what Jesus did and if he's true, he does all three. And dads, let's try to go three for three on this. I mean, everybody. Fatherhood is not grilling steaks. Fatherhood is not being involved in sports. I don't see where steaks and sports happen in this culture. We need to have a good picture of what God gives us that transcends all cultures. We gotta be careful about defining fatherhood in a way that the Bible doesn't define it. I think being a father is leading how Jesus would lead. And that doesn't mean that women aren't invited to this. Straight up, we should all be wanting to be like Jesus. Jesus wasn't a father. Paul wasn't a father. They're giving us a picture of what it means to lead well. Fathers, be the first in speaking the truth. Be the first in showing emotion and coming into your kid's world. That doesn't mean you need to cry. That doesn't mean you need to express it like your neighbor expresses it. Everyone has different tendencies. Everyone has different personalities. Everyone has different ways that God made them. You don't need to cry as much as me. I cry more than anyone in our family. Okay? We should be speaking truth somewhere. We should be entering in to someone's pain, to someone's confusion, to someone's happiness somewhere, and then where the rubber really hits the road, we should demonstrate. We should show. And this is, this is what my dad did. He was three for three. We went, to a, uh, we went to a music festival called Cornerstone when I was younger. We'd camp, we'd have a blast, and a lot of people went there to camp and have a blast and listen to music. And we did that. But I remember one day in particular, we went to a tent where Os Guinness spoke about the realities of God, about the truth and the nature of God. 
And someone raised good questions about, is it okay to swear? Where the church normally is just like, no, swearing's on the bad list of things to do. And he talked through the Bible about the truth of how we use our tongue and has self-control. These are good truths. And then I followed him to the main stage where we had a worship conference. And he bawled his eyes out. And I saw him be in love with Jesus. And I asked him, why are you crying? And he said, sometimes it just hits me. I love Jesus. That's all he had to say. And then there's just years and years of demonstration where he's the real deal. This is fatherhood. You speak the truth. You enter in and you demonstrate. Three for three. A lot of us had dads. Some of us had dads. Zero for three. Some of you might have had a dad that wasn't around. Some of you might have had a dad that's one for three. Two for three. The goal is three for three and there's grace when you're not Three for three. Jesus is just rock star at all three of these. He's given his best TED talk here in John 11. Truth, entering in to emotion. I almost put that E as empathize. But it's not just empathy. It's not just empathy. There's a good way to be angry. It's very, very, very seldom. Like we can pervert that emotion. But all the emotions in the right context, and we demonstrate. Next slide, please. Let's get to Lazarus. Let's get to Lazarus. That's what this, uh, this whole story is about, right? Let's read verse 28. Then Jesus, deeply moved again, same Greek word, deeply moved again, came to the tomb. It was a cave and a stone laid against it. And Jesus said, take away the stone. Martha, the sister of the dead man, said to him, Lord, by this time there will be an odor, for he's been dead for four days. Martha's still stuck in the circumstance. It's like, why didn't, you, why didn't you heal him over here? And Jesus is like, there's a bigger story here. I actually did this for you. I'm gonna show my glory. I'm doing this so you will believe. There's all these good things that are happening when I write the story, when you don't write the story. And then even when he continues to demonstrate and show the story, she's like, I don't know about the smell. I mean, don't get me wrong, dead body for four days, I wouldn't be thrilled about the smell, but she's still stuck in the circumstances. He's like, I'm about to show you why I just did everything. And she's like, well, what about this? Jesus said to her, did I not tell, tell you that if you believed, you would see the glory of God? So they took away the stone, and Jesus lifted up his eyes and said, Father, I thank you that you have heard me. He's demonstrating he is God. He's not a teacher at his identity. He might teach. He's not a teacher. He is life. He's the resurrection. I knew that you always hear me, but I said this on account for the people standing around me. He's doing this bigger story not just for Lazarus' physical body to be alive instead of dead. He's doing this to be on display and show his glory. There's other people around. I did this on account of the people standing around, that they may believe that you sent me. That they may believe that you sent me. 
When he had said these things, he cried out with a loud voice, Lazarus, come out. The man who had died came out, and his hands and feet bound with linen strips, and his face wrapped with a cloth. Jesus said to them, unbind him and let him go. Okay, couple things, couple things. He didn't do this, he didn't like go into the tomb and lay hand, like I don't know how he did all of his miracles when it came to healing the blind man. This one is particular when I read this. When I read this, I say, this is so particular in how he creates life out of what? Out of a call. He creates life out of a call. There's something different about Jesus' call. If I call my dog or if I call my kid, hey, come inside, let's do this. That call puts out something. Jesus' call puts out something and it carries the power in it. There's a dead man. This is a great picture of who we are without God. We're dead. And his call is not towards someone that's asleep. He actually explains that earlier in the, in the chapter. This is not just a sleeping man that does have some motor synapse happening in his brain that he's asleep and so he'll hear the auditory call and it'll wake him up. He's got a call that will induce power to raise a dead man. His call carries power. His call has power. Let me show you this. This is not just Jesus acting in his teaching role. This is Jesus acting in his creating, life-giving role. This reminds me of how everything was made. Life, period. Not just life for Lazarus, life. Life. Let me just go through a couple of these. In the Psalms, by the word of the Lord, the heavens were made, and by the breath of his mouth, all their host. Genesis 1, and the Spirit of God was hovering over the face of the waters, and God said, with his word, God said, he spoke into creation, let there be light. Romans 4, 17, this is killer. As it is written, I have made you the father of many nations in the presence of God in whom he believed, who gives life to the dead and calls into existence. There is a call that Jesus has that we do not have. In the beginning was the word, the word was with God. In Hebrews, by faith we understand that the universe was created by the word of God. This demonstration on Lazarus is a picture of God being God, creating life out of a call. How are you like Lazarus? Notice I didn't put the question, what's the posture of Lazarus on this? Because he's just like dead, right? That's the posture of Lazarus. He doesn't have a posture. He doesn't really have a role here. Jesus' call brings him back into the story. This is us. This is us. Spiritually dead, set apart from God from the beginning. This is the gospel. We are Lazarus. We're laying there, unable to have a posture. We don't even have a sleeping kind of life. We're dead. And God calls, God calls life into life out of nothing, out of darkness, and he calls spiritual life into life out of spiritual deadness. This is the gospel. Our posture is death, and Jesus is life. 
And he keeps talking about us believing Jesus, believing in Jesus, believing in Jesus. If I do this, I'm gonna display, so you will believe in me. What does the in part mean? There's a, lot of, there's a lot of commentary on just saying believe in me. Believe in me is known to be believe you are in me. You are in Jesus. We are Lazarus. This is the gospel. We're born bad. We're born spiritually dead. We don't have a leg to stand on to give ourselves life. And Jesus comes. He's so driven by truth and driven by entering in. He's so driven by entering in, coming down to us and dying the death we deserve and giving us the life that he deserves. He gives us this big trade and it's good news. Let's go back to verse four. You don't have to go up there on here. Go to the, go to the last slide, please. The gospel has something for you in it but it also has something for God. This is God's story. This is God's story. It's bigger than your story. It might not feel like the fairy tale ending, because what is it that makes you go, God, where were you? What is it? And I pray this week we would be able to identify that. And I'm not even gonna leave you with the Lazarus verses. That's a great display of who God is. And it points towards his resurrection of himself. Because God is so good to us that he actually takes our death and resurrects. I'm leaving you with verse four. When Jesus heard it, when he heard of the illness, when he heard of your shortcomings, when he heard of your story gone wrong, when he heard of the health, the wealth, the relationship, the status gone wrong. Maybe it's cancer. The Hoffmans stood up two weeks ago and I watched it online and I was so moved at how they, how much they believe this. The health of their family of course they want health. They set it on top of God's bigger story. People need to know the gospel and they're gonna go do that. When Jesus heard of it, when Jesus heard of your failed fill in the blank, your failed relationship, your failed bank account, your failed job, whatever you thought was the state championship, whatever you thought your story was going towards, when Jesus heard of it, he said, this illness does not lead to death. It is for the glory of God, so that the Son of God might be glorified through it. Do you believe that? Do you believe that Jesus will be glorified through his death if we don't believe that, we can't apply it to our own lives. The most horrendous thing that's ever happened is to have a perfect God be killed innocently. And God used that to glorify himself, to give us life. So how much more can he do for your failed touchdowns?
Our story rests on top of God's bigger glory and bigger story. Let me pray, and we'll be done. God, I pray that we would believe this. I pray this wouldn't be words, this wouldn't be text. I pray that we will fight for joy in the way that only you can provide. I pray that you would move and give us a true reality in who you are. You are the resurrection. You are the life. I pray that we would see that and it would be pushed out of us. God, thank you for your bigger story. Thank you for letting us weep and fall at your feet. Thank you for letting us be confused. Amen.